Let's uh, move into our time of study this morning, and we are in the last session of First John. Great book. Uh, I was listening to a commentary this morning by Chuck Misler, and Chuck got to the end of the teaching and said, normally when he's completed a series uh, going through a book, he's fairly, you know, he was fairly content with what he'd done. He said, having gone through First John, he just feels like he's barely scratched the surface. He said he feels like he'd go through it time and time again and still not cover everything. You know, there is so much depth in the things that John writes. And yet there's also an air of simplicity. John writes that we might know, you know, and we've seen this already in the things that John's alluded to. John said that he's writing this letter so that we would understand, so that we would know. And he gives us specifically these uh, five reasons for writing. Uh, The first of those is that we might have fellowship um you know this is so important you know and and i guess now even more so um we probably take for granted and have taken for granted the joy that comes from fellowshipping with each other now that we've been plunged into this lockdown through covid-19 all these things you know we start to appreciate the 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 value of spending that time together of being able to encourage each other and look praise god that we've had the technology to at least be able to carry on in the way that we had and there's been many blessings, you know, we've said already that we've had more people being able to join us for prayer meetings and for the Bible studies than we've had previously. We've had people from uh, other places in the country uh, that have now to join us, which has been a blessing for us and hopefully for them too. So, you know, there's been things the Lord has definitely done for us and through us and with us through this time. But once again, John writes that we also may have fellowship. So important that we understand that that uh, foundational aspect, of course, is one of the things that are highlighted in Acts chapter two as being one of the bedrocks of the church. Uh, John also writes unto us that, we, that our joy might be full. So before this isn't talking about happiness, something that's transient, something that just passes, something that's based upon emotion. This is something that is deep rooted, that is not affected by the circumstances and the trials and the problems, because that joy is rooted in God himself. Uh, So John writes that we might have that joy that we'd understand. John also writes that we would not sin. I talked about this. It'll come up again this morning. John writes concerning them that seduce you. And we spent a bit of time going through this letter just talking about the danger of deception that is in this world. And particularly now, you know, as we've gone through this uh, pandemic, there's been all sorts of things that have been uh, put out there uh, as if we should blindly follow and accept certain things. And, you know, and not just from from government, I'm talking, I'm talking about from within the church. Lots of things have been said. There's been a very um, militant attitude that has developed throughout the church towarding authority toward authority now we need to be very careful about that um so you know we've talked about these things already but we need to be very careful that deception is subtle that's why it works you know you never as i said before you never get a forged nine pound note because nobody would accept it you only get forgeries of things that look like the original uh, and this is why we need to be so discerning regarding the things that are happening in our days Because there are many, as John says, that would like to seduce us and pull us away. And John writes again that we may know that we've had it, that we have eternal life. We'll talk about that again because uh, in the end of this chapter, John will come back to that theme one more time. Um, And there's an unwritten uh, reason that John writes all these things. And it's simply that we might learn what love really is. And we looked at that last time. The whole basis of love. Love is of God. Love is from God. God is love. If we are to love, it doesn't come from a emotion or a feeling within us. It comes from God. So if we are to love others, 
It only comes from a true relationship with God. He then puts his love uh, spread abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that enables us to love others. And there is nothing more wonderful than loving others with a godly love that he has put in you. And even in an intimate relationship between a husband and a wife, true love only comes from God. This is why the world makes such a a mess of marriage, of relationships and so on. Because for the world, love is all about what can I get? How does it make me feel? You know, how can you bless me or make me feel good or happy or whatever or fulfilled? That's not really what love is. Love is demonstrated in God sending his son. Love is about giving. So those are the things we've looked at. And we'll see again in this chapter uh, a little bit more of that expounded. So let's just bow our hearts and let's commit this final study in this uh, incredible letter uh, to the Lord that he would bless us as we read now. So, Father, we thank you for this time. Speak to our hearts and to our minds, to our understanding, we pray. Lord, give us clarity of the things that John wrote that you would have us know that should impact our lives right now here this morning. We pray for your blessing, that you would reveal these things to us through your spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 5 verse 1. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. It's quite a simple statement, but this is one of those ones that I guess Chuck was alluding to that you could spend, you know, a few seconds on this and move on, or you could spend a lifetime just getting your head around the things that John says here. You know, but simply that if we believe that Jesus is the, is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and that he is born of God, that he's God manifested the flesh, we're told that everyone that loves him that begat, okay, loves, loves God, loves him also that is begotten of him. So if we love God, we will love Jesus. If we have a true and right relationship with God, then we will have a love for his son. They are, of course, one and the same. So it's an interesting thing that we draw from this, that really one of our principal goals is to love Jesus. You know, we have this relationship with God because of Jesus, but actually to love Jesus should be a goal that we had. Now, this is Interesting, ladies, uh, during the week, we're talking about goals and so on, and uh, maybe the way we can go about looking at setting goals and things like that. Um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, you need to have that mindset that this is not just going to happen. You won't just suddenly wake up loving Jesus. I mean, there is naturally a love that overflows in our hearts once we're saved. There's an excitement, there's a joy. But it's very much like we see with Simon Peter. Simon Peter is a great example of this kind of love and the way that we should approach our relationship with Jesus. Initially, he follows Jesus out of a sense of fascination. You know, Jesus calls him as a fisherman on the shores of Galilee to come and follow me. And Peter does. He drops the nets. Off he goes, follows after Jesus. And yet later, Peter denies Jesus three times. And it's not until the end of John's gospel that we get that encounter after the resurrection. And Jesus says, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me unconditionally? And it's a real pull on Peter's heartstrings. So let me ask you the question this morning. You know, how do you measure your love for Jesus? If that's our goal to love him more, you know, what are you doing about it? How do you measure it? You know, do you love Jesus more now than this time last year, for example? You know, and what can you do to love Jesus more? 
And these are questions I think we should think about. We should think about, okay, how am I looking to develop my relationship? We're all familiar, uh, I guess, with the relationships with a, between a husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, those kind of relationships, they develop through spending time together. They don't just develop because you have an attraction to each other. There has to be things that help you draw together, the the glue that stick you together, the the places you go, the things that you do, the memories that you build. That's how relationships develop. Well, how are we developing our relationship with Jesus? Are we consciously looking to spend time with him? And I don't just mean doing a devotion in the morning. I don't just mean reading the Bible. You know, I hope you are reading the Bible. I hope you're going through this year reading scripture. Um, whatever you've set yourself as your, your goal, your target to read through this year, whether it be just a book or through the whole of Psalm 119 uh, or through the whole of the Bible, whatever you've set yourself as a goal, that's a good thing. I encourage you to do that. Strongly encourage you. We'll bless you. But that's not the same as spending time with Jesus. You know, that time where you just typically get alone. I mean, I, I spend so much of my time with joy. I do. You know, we're married. We live in the same house. But, you know, how much of my time do I actually spend with joy? You know, the children are around, work pressures are always going on. There's things that need to be done. There's shopping that needs to be done. There's washing, there's ironing, there's daily chores. You know, just because we're around each other all the time doesn't mean we're spending that quality time together. You know, anybody that's, that's married, anybody that lives in a home environment, you understand those kind of realities. Well, the question is, how do we go about spending quality time with Jesus? And I really encourage you just to think about this, even if you set yourself a goal of spending, let's say, two minutes a day, just two minutes a day to start with, just with Jesus. You switch off every other distraction. And I'm not talking about sitting down and reading the Bible. I'm not talking about necessarily praying, just spending some time with the Lord. Just ask the Lord to speak to you. It might be that you turn to a portion of scripture and you meditate on it. You allow it just to speak to you and you just think about his goodness, about his grace of all he's done for you. And you thank him. You know, know, that might then build to five minutes a day. It might build to half an hour. It might build to an hour. Don't worry about the timescales. Just concentrate on spending time with Jesus to develop that relationship. As a pastor, I can't encourage you to do anything of more value than that. Now, of course, if you don't really love Jesus, the question that John puts here really is, well, do you really know him? Because if you love Jesus, then that relationship will develop. And you need to have this uh, understanding that we have to build this. It's not something that will just happen on its own. It takes effort, as any relationship does. Now, the good thing is we have the Holy Spirit within us who is burning with desire to get us into this close, intimate relationship with Jesus. And he will help us and he will assist us. He will reveal things from the word. Remember what Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, that he will teach us of the things that Jesus said. So as we go to scripture, the Holy Spirit wants to point us to our Savior. Okay, first verse. Let's go to the second verse. By this we know that we love the children of God. Now, We've seen this theme already, and it says, when we love God and keep his commandments. So a very simple demonstration is that if we love God, if we keep his commandments, by default, we'll love the children of God. We'll love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if we have that love for God, if we're enjoying keeping his commandments, well, naturally it will overflow that we'll love God's people. And you can spin that round. You know, I'm sure some of you are familiar with those triangles you get in maths and various other subjects. Um, you know, you have kind of three different uh, factors. Um, 
you take for resistance you've obviously got um uh, voltage impedance resistance the vir triangle and you've got various other triangles i'm sure some of you are familiar with those kind of things it's the same here with the keeping commandments loving god loving the brethren all of those things are intertwined they all work together if you want to do one then the other two are the way to do that it's very simple and then verse three says for this is the love of god that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous i love this statement god's commandments are not something that are a burden to us if we love him you know psalm 37 speaks about delighting ourselves in the lord and he'll give us the desires of our hearts you know if we do delight him ourselves in the lord he will place within us the desire to do the things that he would have us do again these three things are intertwined loving god keeping his commandments, loving God's children. Verse four, we're told, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the son of God. So again, whatever is born of God, well, our new lives, of course, are born of God. We'll talk about this in a little while in a bit more detail, but we have been born again through the spirit of God. So whatever is born of God, because it is of God, because it sources outside this world, it will overcome this world. And we're told that this is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith, you know, is something that's given to us by God. Romans ten seventeen says that God has given to everyone a measure of faith. You know, so we have faith. God has given us that faith. It's from outside of this realm of things. It's that confident belief and knowledge that God is who he says he is. You know, and that faith is that which allows us to keep his commandments, to obey him. And this is what we're told here, that whatever is born of God will overcome the world. The world throws all sorts of things at us, doesn't it? All sorts of challenges and problems and stresses and pressures. But, you know, we can overcome every single thing that the world throws at us if our relationship with God is as it should be. We're told, verse five, who is he that overcomes the world? You know, who, who are those that can and are able to overcome the world? Well, quite simply, he that believes that Jesus is the son of God. This is a statement. It's put in a rhetorical sense. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the son of God. This is a rhetorical statement, but this is the, 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 the way it is. That if we believe that Jesus really is God manifest in the flesh, then naturally we will love him because we love him. We'll love our brethren. We will overcome the things of this world. And again, overcoming the world is again linked here to keeping his commandments. If you believe that Jesus is the son of God, you will love God. If you love God, you'll keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments, you'll overcome the world. And notice again that faith underpins all of this is if you believe. And this is what we're told in the verse above. And it's our faith, our faith. That's the, the belief. Spurgeon said this. He said, look at any Greek lexicon you like. There's a list of Greek words and their meanings. Uh, and you will find that the word faith or believe does not merely mean to believe, but to trust, to confide in, to commit to, entrust with, and so forth. The very marrow of the meaning of faith is confidence in and reliance upon. Well, that speaks about the relationship we should have with Jesus, our faith. Verse six, this is he that came by water and blood. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. 
Interesting verse, but what does it mean? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. Now, I want to just take you through some of the comments that David Guzik makes in his commentary. Uh, David Guzik, one of the Calvary pastors uh, in America, um, great scholarly man of God. He makes these comments. He says, he who came by water and blood. John makes it clear that the Jesus who speaks, uh, that he speaks of is not uh, the Gnostic phantom Jesus who was so holy that he had nothing to do with this world. The Jesus we must believe on is the Jesus who came by water and blood. The Jesus who was part of a real, material, flesh and blood earth. So the first thing here, we need to realise that John is writing here to uh, challenge that which was being put forth by the Gnostics. And some of them were saying, this is those who believed they had special knowledge and so on that set them apart from others. Uh, that their knowledge had led them to understand that Jesus was not physical, that he was some sort of phantom, some sort of um, spirit entity, and so on. And this is what they began to teach from about late second to third century, uh, predominantly, but it was already rearing its ugly head in John's day. <clears throat> in John 3 verse 5, uh, this is the, the account where Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. Uh, and John is uh, recording here that Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, there's been debates by scholars and Bible commentators over the years. It's exactly what John was referring to here. Uh, but Jesus is speaking of clearly two births here. There's a natural birth, which I believe is referring by water. But it says, and of the spirit, which is a spiritual birth through faith. You've probably heard the old adage, if you're born once, you'll die twice. And of course, if you're born twice, you'll die once. Of course, if you're born only physically, then potentially you will die just physically and spiritually. If you're born twice, in other words, you're born physically as a, as a baby, but then you are born again as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, then you'll only die once because physically you'll die, but spiritually you'll live for eternity. Um, that's kind of true. I just want to just, just correct that because we've often used that. We've said that. I'm sure you've used that yourself sometimes. But actually, for believers, let me take you through the real way this is. And this is just, just a technical thing. So if you you can switch off if you want. But for those that are interested, I just thought I'd throw this in. You are born naturally. So that's your first birth. But you're dead in trespasses and sins. Because although you're born, effectively, from the moment you're born, you're dead. Spiritually dead. Because we all died back in the garden through Adam's sin. Dead in trespasses and sins. So we're born once, we die once. But then we're born again as Christians spiritually, which is what John 3.16 tells us. So now we're born twice. Never to die again spiritually because the spirit within us is the spirit of God. Now, you may die physically if you're not raptured. Uh, so if we're not raptured, then yes, we will die physically. So effectively born twice, die twice. But then we'll get to eat of the tree of life. And this is in Revelation 2.7. And we will physically live eternally. The reason that God guarded the way to the tree of life is so that Adam and Eve wouldn't eat of it in their fallen state. But now that we're in an unfallen state, as it were, that we've been redeemed, we've been born again of the Spirit of God, we get to eat of that tree of life. And effectively, it's like a third birth. That not only are we born naturally, but then we are born spiritually, but then our new bodies, the new creation gets to eat of that tree of life. And our physical bodies, the new bodies that we receive will then live for eternity. So in a sense, we can argue that as Christians, we are born three times and we only die twice. Now, for the unbelievers, 
They are, of course, born naturally. And like us, born in trespasses and sins. So they're born once, they die once. They will also die physically. So they die twice. But then they will also be subject to the second death that the Bible speaks about, when they will be eternally damned. So in a sense, you can argue that they're born once and they'll die three times. So just to clarify, uh, if, uh, if you're interested in the details, that's how I think it all really works out from what Scripture reveals. Now, let's get back to the point that John's trying to make here, because, again, in Adam, we all die. We've seen that. In Christ, all shall be made alive. The punishment for sin was death. As we said, in the Garden of Eden, all humanity died spiritually. Unless we are reborn spiritually by receiving God's spirit within us, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven and will remain spiritually dead. But God, of course, we're told is the father of spirits. Whatever is born of God does not sin. Now, this is what John has said already. We've seen John back in 1 John 3. We're going to see it again in verse 18 of this chapter. So let's go back to this verse. This is he that came by water and blood. So now the question is, what does it mean? Now, going to, again, just reading from David Guzik's commentary, he said this. Some believe that water speaks of our own baptism and blood speaks of receiving communion. And that John writes uh, of how Jesus comes to us in the two Christian sacraments of baptism and communion. Apparently, Luther and Calvin had this idea. Yet, if this is the case, it doesn't add up with the historical perspective John had when he wrote came by water and blood in other words past tense he seems to write of something that happened in the past not something that is ongoing david guzzi goes on it says others such as augustine believe that the water and the blood describes the water and the blood which flowed from jesus side when he was stabbed with the spear on the cross you know the script from john 19:34. but one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear and immediately blood and water came out this was an important event to the apostle john because immediately after this description of water and blood he added in his gospel and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe yet if this was john's meaning it's a little unclear how it can be said that jesus came by water and blood so these are interesting ideas and some commentators have gone down this route David Guzik says, still other, others believe that the water spoke of Jesus' first birth, being born of the waters of the womb, and blood speaks of his death. He says, if this is the case, John would be essentially writing, Jesus was born like a man and died like a man. He was completely human, not some super spiritual being who had no real contact with the material world. The Gnostics in John's day, of course, thought of Jesus as such a super spiritual being or just that kind of thing. David Guzzi goes on and says, probably the best explanation, uh, though there are good points to some of the other ideas, is the oldest recorded Christian understanding of this passage, first recorded by the ancient Christian Tertullian. Most likely, John means the water of Jesus' baptism and the blood of his crucifixion. When Jesus was baptized, he was not baptized in repentance for his own sin. He had, had none, but because he wanted to completely identify with sinful humanity. When he came by water, it was his way of saying, I am one of you. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not die because he had to. Death could not have any power over him. But he laid down his life to identify with sinful humanity and to save us from our sin. When he came by blood, it was so that he could stand in our place as a guilty sinner and to take the punishment our sin deserved. And they are David Guzik's commentaries. Now, once again, just highlight that John says this is he who came by water. So he's speaking of past tense of something that's been accomplished. So that helps us to understand what John is really saying here. And notice by water. Now, 
up until last night when I was going through this again, I'd always tend to think that this really was a reference to the natural birth, that Jesus did come naturally in this world as a human being. That's the incarnation that we speak of. And of course, that is the idiom, as we've already seen, that John uses in John 3. And the blood, well, it seems to speak of, of course, his sacrificial death in our place, without which we could never be redeemed. So we, in a sense, have the water, which is the natural, and the blood speaks of the divine, of that which he accomplished, satisfying the ju judgment from God, the justice of God, and so on. So in one sense, we could look at this, and I think there's merit in this, that Jesus was, of course, perfect God and man in one. And I think that's part of what John is trying to convey here. And that was generally my understanding of this um, up until last night. Now, I then went on um, and I looked at this in the Living Bible. Now, the Living Bible, I've mentioned a number of times recently, it's, it's treated as a commentary. But as a commentary, I actually think it's one of the best commentaries that we have access to. It was written by a man by the name of Kenneth Taylor. It was written for his daughters to uh, try and explain scripture in a way that they would uh, relate to. Um, but clearly he's done a fantastic job of understanding the ideas in the text here. So although it's not a word for word translation, it's a good commentary. Uh, we've actually, as a, as a family, we've started going through it this year because I think it's helpful in many respects. There's a number of things recently that I've gone back to the Living Bible just to see how he translated it. And it's brought real clarity, certainly in agreement with what the actual text says. Now, in regard to this verse, this is what John, uh, this is what Kenneth Taylor says. I think this is helpful. He says, and we know he is, speaking that he is Jesus, he's the Savior. He says, because God said so with a voice from heaven when Jesus was baptized and again as he was facing death. Yes, not only at his baptism, but also as he faced death. And the Holy Spirit, forever truthful, says it too. Now, I think that was really quite enlightening because actually this verse, I think, is simply saying that the testimony that we have is speaking about the Holy Spirit bearing witness. But how can we know that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, because God declared it at his baptism and God declared it at the cross. On both occasions, the voice of God was heard testifying that Jesus is his son. So, again, I'm grateful to that, uh, that insight in a sense. I think it makes a lot of sense of verse 6 of 1 John 5. And actually, it's kind of made very clear, I think, as we read on, because it says, for there are three that bear record in heaven. This is talking about the witness that we have. It says the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one interesting that we have of course the spirit the water and the blood the water and the blood john's just referred to seemingly speaking about the holy spirit that bears witness there was the voice at jesus's baptism and there was the voice of god and there was a voice of god again at the cross of the crucifixion and these are all in agreement that jesus really is who he says he is so we need not doubt the person of jesus that jesus christ really is the messiah okay now with that said we cannot leave these verses without addressing the controversy. Now, if you're not aware of the controversy, you won't have to spend much time reading these portions of scripture before you become aware of it. If we look at the English Standard Version, it translates these two verses as there on the screen. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, I think you'll notice 
that there's a big chunk missed out of what they put there. If we look at the NIV, it says this, for there are three that testify. That's all it says in regard to verse seven. It misses out the statement about the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, the Trinity, effectively. It's just removed. And it says that the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So kind of verse eight is largely there, but almost all of verse seven is omitted in the NIV. And this is the same for most modern translations, the NASB. A New American Study Bible says this, uh, or Standard Bible rather, um, for there are three that testify. Again, it misses out the rest of verse seven. The spirit, the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. Now, in the footnote for the NASB, it says this, a few late manuscripts, they always put it as MSS, it's just an abbreviation for manuscript. A few late manuscripts add in heaven, the Father, the Word and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and these three uh, are one. And there are three that testify on earth, uh, the spirit, and it goes on from that point. So it's saying that what you have in your Bible, if you're reading a King James version or a new King James version, it's saying that that has been added into the text. And it's saying it was added at a much later date, that it wasn't really part of the original text. Now, this is an issue that we need to understand and need to have very clear in our hearts and minds what we think about this issue. Now, if you go to the NIV and you look in the NIV study bible it will make this very bold statement late manuscripts of the vulgate that was a translation by a man named Jerome it was in 400 AD roughly it was putting the bible into the popular language of the, the of Rome at the time into latin so it's translation from the Greek text into Latin, the Vulgate. Vulgate just means popular. And it says the late manuscripts of the Vulgate testify, this is what it says, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one, and there are three that testify on earth. And it says, so, so what it's saying is that the late versions of the Vulgate actually have the, the whole text in there. But then it puts this statement in there, but not found in any Greek manuscript before the 16th century. In other words, what we're being told is that these verses are, or the, the verse 7 particularly, is an addition that was added into the text at a much, much later date. Well, that means if that's the case, it means that we've got things that have been added to God's word. It means that God hadn't preserved his word. It means that people have been able to just uh, interpose things into scripture. And then you and I are left in the position of trying to work out, well, what should be in there and what shouldn't be in there? And that becomes a real dangerous ground to be on because people then are at liberty to say, well, I don't think that should have been in there or I don't think that should be in there. And that actually is what's happened. Let me give you a very brief history of the Bible, if I may, just to try and clear this issue up. Of course, the New Testament's books were written, uh, I believe, uh, very much down to the scholarship of Bill Cooper and the things that he's uncovered, that the whole of the New Testament was written by 70 AD. Not one of the New Testament writers referred to or mentioned the destruction of the temple as past tense. Jesus speaks of it prophetically as going to happen, but not one of them record this hugely significant event as something that's happened. They don't, there's not even an allusion to it as being an event that has taken place. Uh, and there's many other evidence as well that we can pull for this. So New Testament books all written by 70 AD. When we get up to the third, the fourth century, we find that there were careful copies that have been made and started to be spread around the world from that time onwards. However, in Egypt and Alexandra in Egypt, there was a cult that was rising. And this is what John has been alluding to that was making their own version of the Bible. They were 
trying to deny the deity of Christ, that Jesus really was God manifest in the flesh. These are the things that John has addressed. And this became a real issue in the early church. There was an individual by the name of Oregon who was a kind of primary proponent of that from around about 240 AD and so on. And so they made their own copies or translations of the Bible, but they altered and amended many of the texts to fit in with their thinking. Now, that eventually leads to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And there were other uh, church councils to try and really clarify what should be in the Bible and what it should say and so on. Not that it, there was really any doubt. It was all settled by the end of the um, the first century. But uh, Jerome then, as we mentioned a moment ago, 400 AD, then translates from the Greek text he had into Latin, which becomes known as the Latin Vulgate. But notice that comes from the Alexandrian manuscripts. So the version that Jerome uses was an Alexandrian copy or corruption of the original text. When we get to the time of uh, the, the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, sometimes they're referred to, we have lots of wonderful individuals come onto the scene. People like John Wycliffe and Tyndale and others. Um, and they write this uh, John Wycliffe wrote the first hand copied translation of the Bible in English. Um, Tyndale and others were also very keen to get the Bible translated into English. Tyndale came a little bit later and he was famous for speaking to a, uh, a minister who was a, a, a clergyman who was uh, challenging this idea of translating the Bible into English. And Wycliffe, fam- uh, sorry, uh, Tyndale famously said, if God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plough to know more of the scriptures than you do. Uh, it's quite a famous quote of Tyndale's. But of course, that came to pass that before long, we ended up with many English translations of the Bible. When we get to the time fifteen sixteen onwards, we have an individual by the name of Erasmus. Now he exposes the Vulgate, this Latin version that Jerome had translated, and showed that there were many many errors in the things that he translated, and even the way he translated certain things. So he then sets about collating over five thousand copies, not all complete but part copies of the text of the New Testament that have been passed down. Now, these were known then collectively as the Textus Receptus, or the received text. And they were found to be in almost complete agreement, all bar a few spelling issues. So there was no difference regarding doctrine or what verses should or shouldn't be in there. This collection of manuscripts became the Textus Receptus. And it was from that group of texts, all drawn again from uh, the copies that have been made down through the centuries, that then are used to translate the New Testament portion uh, that we have, which becomes the King James, uh, sometimes referred to as authorised. That term is only because King James authorised it. It's not God authorised, it's King James authorised. Authorised an English translation, again, from the received text. And then we get to um, many years later, uh, so kind of plus nearly 300 years from that point, uh, we didn't need any. There have been loads of English translations up to 1611 from the time of Wycliffe onwards, and suddenly they all stopped. There was no need for another English translation because these scholars that have put the King James together had really been very, very diligent. You only need to read the preface of King James to read the, the work that they did and how they set about checking and revising. And there was three groups that were set up to translate and they all checked each other's work 
There's no other translations that come onto the scene up until 1881. And that's when the revised version was then published. Now I'm going to come to this and give you a little bit more detail about that. Now, Codex Vaticanus. You may have heard of this. Codex is just a fancy word. It means a book. It's, a, it's something with lots of pages that have been put together. Okay, so Codex Vaticanus, just this Bible, uh, appeared for the first time in the Vatican Library Catalogue in 1475. So this version or translation of the Bible uh, certainly existed in 1475, but there is no mention of it at all before that time. It just comes onto the scene. In fact, a number of statements about it seems to imply that it had just been a work that was completed at that point. There was a man by the name of Simonides. Now, he was commissioned to produce an authentic, so something that looked like an original, handwritten copy of the Bible for the Tsar of Russia. So in 1830, he set about this work. He set about creating this very authentic-looking, original-looking copy of the Bible as a gift for the Tsar of Russia, who'd shown lots of kindness to the, the Christian church. A few years later, in fact, about 13 years later, uh, by the time that Simonides had completed his work, he'd sent it off to the Tsar in Russia and believing that it was going to get to the Tsar. Another man, a German man by the name of Tischendorf, was invited. Now, he was a Protestant. So get the, the, the irony or the strange situation here. He was invited to go to the Vatican to see Pope Gregory XVI. Whilst he was there, he was shown the copy of the Vaticanus, which had been kept under lock and key pretty much up until that point. A very strange thing that you invite a Protestant in to show him these things. Well, then the following year, sent on a, a mission by the Roman Catholic Church, Tischendorf discovers this Codex Sinaiticus, as it becomes known, at a monastery at the top of Mount Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, not the real Mount Sinai, but the one that's given that title. Tischendorf had a great distrust and dislike to the Textus Receptus, the work that Erasmus has done. He said this, we have at last hit upon a better plan even than this, which is to set aside this Textus Receptus altogether and to consult a fresh text derived immediately from the most ancient and authoritative sources. Now, that's his statement. It just shows his dislike for the Texas Receptors and his plan to try and replace it with something else. And obviously, this quest, he goes out and incredibly discovers this codex. Uh, initially, only discovers uh, part of it, apparently in a waste bin. So the story goes in the monastery in Mount Sinai. Well, Simonides also visits Mount Sinai and the monastery and he recognises Sinaiticus, as it's become known by that point, as his own work. He recognises it as the work that he had done to be given to the Tsar of Russia. Clearly, it never made it. So he tries to expose this fraud, but is silenced. Well, within a short time following that, Codex Vaticanus is officially published, suddenly released onto the world scene. Now, bear in mind, we didn't have internet, we didn't have news media like we have today, but clearly there seems to have been an agenda here because just as this is starting to become uh, public and everybody starts to hear about Codex Vaticanus, suddenly, two years after this, the Roman Catholic Church hailed the discovery of the Sinaiticus as the oldest manuscript, along with Vaticanus. And we are told, and if you go do Google search or whatever, you will find today 
everybody believes that these two manuscripts, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, both date back to round about 400 AD. And they'll tell you that they're the oldest and they're the most reliable manuscripts that exist. Bill Cooper, in uh, his book, um, The Forging of Codex Sinaiticus, says the Vatican had tried unsuccessfully for 300 years to overthrow the Reformation Bible. Now, by that, Bill Cooper is referring to the many Bibles that have been produced during the Reformation period, all from the received text or these 5,000 plus manuscripts. Many Bibles have been translated in different languages throughout Europe, including the King James in this country. In fact, there were a number of English translations leading up to that. But then, of course, the, um, these two new manuscripts or these ones that are purported to be really old come onto the scene and they become the standard that is adopted from that point. Uh, just to highlight as well, 1859 is the year Sinaiticus is foisted upon the world. It was the same year the origin of the species was also released. An interesting year in terms of attacks against the true authority of God's word. Um, that then becomes the, the basis for the revised version. It comes from the Sinaiticus and with the little support from the Vaticanus and so on. Don't have time this morning to go into all the issues and the details behind the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, but there are so many translational issues and problems. In fact, there's over 9,000 differences between the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus alone. And yet they're supposed to be basically saying the same thing. And there's lots of other issues and copyist errors and so on. Now, the footnotes of most modern translations state that particular verses are not found in the oldest or the most reliable manuscripts. That's the case, of course, with the verse that we're looking at this morning, 1 John 5, verses 7 and verse 8, but particularly verse 7. But by that statement, they're actually referring to the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. They're saying that those two manuscripts are the most, are the oldest and the most reliable. But now we know that both of these are modern forgeries. Okay, they they weren't back to the fourth century. Uh, they've been uh, the work much much later on, and clearly the Vatican was behind this, trying to push these versions upon the world because there's lots of uh, significant translational issues between them. The Vulgate itself uh, was translated, as I said earlier, from the Alexandrian manuscripts, and almost all modern versions of the Bible now come from this source. So just to give you an overview of the sources, we start with our original text of the Bible, as was written by the apostles, the disciples, and so on, and those authors of the New Testament that we have. And then we get the Alexandrian corruption. That leads to the Vulgate, which is a poor translation itself into Latin. That then leads to the discovery of the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, which we now know were forgeries. That leads to these two individuals, Westcott and Holt. You may have heard their names. They were supposedly godly churchmen. They were anything of the sort. They were involved in the occult. They were uh, followers of Darwin and all sorts of other things. Um, very, very concerning, uh, their, their history and so on. It's easy to read. There's all sorts of information about them. But that leads on to the modern translations we have. The NIV, ESV, NASB, in fact, almost all modern translations. On the other side, you have the original text, which were then carefully preserved and copies were made. Not always complete copies, but certainly partial copies. There's about 5,000 manuscripts in existence from which Erasmus compiles the Textus Receptus, which then leads to the Bibles that then were translated in the various places around Europe in the various languages that we have. And of course, our version of that uh, out of the Reformation became the King James version of the Bible. Okay. Where is all this heading? Well, if we go back to this uh, just statement, um, that 
comment that's in the NIV study Bible that says that this verse, verse 7 of 1 John uh, chapter 5 says that not found in any Greek manuscript before the 16th century. Well, let's just look at that claim. Now, I'm presuming that the translators, those that put together the NIV, must have been far more scholarly than I am. They must have had access to all sorts of information and documents. And they make this statement that this verse wasn't found in any manuscript before the 16th century. Now, I've put to you that that is a blatant lie. It has to be a lie because I can't believe that they couldn't find what I can simply find and you can simply find by simply a little bit of digging and research. We find that it actually appears this verse, verse 7, in its fullness, in fact, the whole of these two verses, in the writing of a man by the name of Theophilus of Antioch in 180 AD. Now, that is before the real Arian heresy kicked off in about 240, 260 uh, uh, AD. It's quoted by Cyprian at Carthage in 250 AD. It's part of the text of the Latin manuscript R, 300 AD. It's quoted by two Spanish bishops in 385 AD. Now, one of the comment or, uh, the articles I was reading last night said that this Priscillian individual was apparently a heretic. Well, regardless, he was still quoting the verse. It means existed. Whether, whether he was quoting it in the right way or not, he was... The fact that he quoted it means that it had to exist at that point. It's quoted by many African bishops in the 4th century uh, in arguments against uh, Arianism. This idea, again, that we build the, the, really the Gnostic ideas that have been fed through. It's quoted by a man named Cassidorus, a church leader in Italy in 480 AD. Uh, and there's also a Greek grammatical structural problem if you remove it. The text in Greek doesn't flow as it should. Uh, it just creates a problem. Um, but interestingly, one of the greatest proofs we have that this is not a later edition, as all these versions are trying to claim it is, and as many will tell you today it is, it was actually used satirically by an individual by the name of Lucian of Samasta. He was not a believer. He was very anti-Christianity and anti-the Bible. And yet he uses this in a satirical work that he put together, which we know dates to around about 46 years after John had written it. So within a really short space of time, this non-Christian in his work actually quotes and uses this verse, which means it existed. All right, why does it all matter? I mean, why have I just taken you through that just before your lunch on a Sunday? Well, attorney Erwin H. Linton said the following. The infallibility of the record upon which rests the eternal essentials of our faith, the deity of Christ, his voluntary atoning death, the bodily resurrection and impending return in power and glory are all rendered uncertain in a mind in which the accuracy of the Bible record is in doubt. What he's saying is, if anybody can call into question the things that are in the Bible and you start doubting whether it should they be there or shouldn't be there, then it's going to affect everything you believe about what the Bible says about the foundational, essential tenets of our faith. Now, some years ago, I was involved in a uh, an email uh, debate exchange with a Christian group who I had great respect for. I knew the individual that headed up and ran this uh, particular ministry. But somebody in their ministry in one of their monthly newsletters put out the following. A lady phoned me in a, convert, uh, in a concerned frame of mind following an encounter with Jehovah's Witnesses. The conversation had turned to the Trinity and she had confidently turned to 1 John 5, 7 to 8 to prove that it was in the Bible. She was shocked to be informed by her callers that the verses she quoted didn't belong in the Bible. They are a later edition. 
The call to me was to confirm the facts. A good modern study Bible, I have the NIV open before me, will tell you that the deliciously tempting clause, testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, the, the, um, there are three that testify on the earth, that clause is not found in any manuscript or translation before the 16th century. You see, this individual was just repeating what he'd heard, what he'd read, what he'd been told. He said, when I told her, she replied in consternation, but I've been using those verses for 30 years. Now, I got in touch and I complained because <laughs> I said, you have just undermined the faith of a genuine, sincere believer who trusted God's word by telling them that those verses shouldn't be there. You're arguing that they're not in any manuscript before the 16th century. And I gave him a list that I've just gone through with you, showing that those verses clearly were there right from the start. Those verses that we've read this morning were in the original. They are what John wrote. There is no question. If you want to read a really interesting uh, explanation about why this controversy even came about in the first place and why people questioned it, really encourage you to read Bill Cooper's book, The Authenticity of the New Testament. He goes through a whole section showing the the root of where this problem and this question actually came from. And it didn't come from a scholarly source at all. It just came from somebody that had a real beef with the Bible. Verse nine. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which is testified of his son. You see, we've just gone through some verses there that are talking about the the testimony and the witness that we have to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. Verse 7 and 8 do tell us about the Trinity, about the Father, the Son and the Spirit. And yes, you can use them in your conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses or anybody. And if they come back and tell you that's not in the original, you agree with them. Say it's not in the original that you're using because their translation the um, translation that uh, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses use, that comes from the Alexandrian manuscripts also. So no, it won't be in their versions. And it won't be in a lot of the modern versions that also come from that source. But it is in the original, and there's plenty of ways we can prove it. So it's a great uh, argument to throw back if anybody challenges you. But really, the point of going through all that this morning was that we can trust every single thing we have in Scripture. We don't need to start throwing things out and... Uh, giving in to people that are um, going off on whatever agendas they have to try and undermine or to disprove certain points in the word of God. So this whole issue though here, John is making the point that we have the assurance that Jesus really is who he says he is because God confirmed it at his baptism, confirmed it at the cross, and we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. And again, this verse just continues that theme that John has said. We've got the witnesses. If we receive the witness of men, okay, which we listen to what men have got to say in regard to whatever, he says the witness of God is greater. And of course, God witnessed twice, both at the uh, baptism and the crucifixion, as we've said. He that believes on the Son of God has witness in himself. You see, we don't actually need external witnesses. It doesn't matter that you and I weren't there at the baptism and at the, at the um, crucifixion because we've got God's testimony. We've got the word of God anyway, but we've also got a witness in ourselves. He that believes not God has made him a liar, makes God a liar because God declares that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. See, once again, indebted to uh, Kenneth Taylor's 
paraphrase of this because it just brings a little bit of light to understand exactly what John really was saying. And it seems to clearly be from these verses referring to what God himself had publicly declared, an audible voice that people heard. And it's saying, if you deny that, you're denying God himself. You're saying God's a liar. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. What a great statement. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. God has given us eternal life and that eternal life is in Jesus Christ. That's where the only place you will find eternal life. Verse 12, we can make a run to the end of the chapter. He that is the son has life. He that has uh, not the son of God has not life. It's really simple. If you want eternal life, it can only be found in Jesus. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the son of God. This should answer the question, can I lose my salvation? Because John writes, stating here that you can know that you have eternal life. If it is eternal, it cannot be lost put aside forfeited taken away because it is eternal by very definition if it is eternal it will go on forever you have been given this gift notice as well what we're told here verse 13 again these things have i written john says i've written to you unto you that believe on the name of the son of god that you may know that you have this is a gift that's been given you may have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of of the son of god see john again makes it clear we can know this it's a done deal it's complete it's secured it's irrevocable verse 14 and this is the confidence john would add that if there was any doubt whatsoever he says this is the confidence that we have in him and he goes on and says that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us why are we told this why does god hear us why do we have this statement this promise well because we have been given eternal life we have been brought into his family because we are his again we're eternally saved and so because this we have this confidence that he will hear us we don't have to wonder if god might hear us we know that when we go to him in prayer god will hear us verse 15 says and if we know which we do that he hears us whatsoever we ask we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him and again we are told to pray in faith and this verse tells us that we should go to him and ask because he wants to hear us and he will hear us it's really what uh, we're told back in matthew's gospel ask seek and knock verse 16 if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he should pray for it. Now, this is a troubling verse, certainly in some senses. We're simply told, let's just do the easy part. If you see a brother sinning, go talk to them, pray with them, help them. Don't condemn them. Don't look, I'm surprised you did that. Well, don't be, because in all of us dwells the possibility of any sin that you can conceive or think of. Okay, so never despair with another brother or sister that you see sinning. Go put your arm around them, encourage them, pray for them, help them. You see, if any brother, if any man see a brother in a sin which, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask. Notice we've just been told we should ask and God will hear us. And he, that's God, shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. So it's a really important thing. We are to pray for each other. If we stumble, if we fall, and others know about it and we share it with another member of the fellowship and say, look, please help me. I struggled with this. Or I fell. I did this. I, you know, you don't have to give them specifics necessarily. 
but just let I stumble. Pray for me. Well, let's pray for each other because God has promised to respond in regard to that. This verse speaks of that restoration. But then we have the question, well, what is it referring to when it says that there is a sin unto death? Well, let me just give you some scriptural uh, uh, references to this. We have, of course, in Acts chapter 5, a situation with Ananias and Sapphira who were lying to the Holy Spirit. God sees to it that they both die. They fall down dead in front of the disciples and fear comes upon all the church. Now, the interesting thing is that even in that instance, there's no suggestion that salvation was forfeited. God just took them out of the game. They lied to the Holy Spirit. That was the big problem. It wasn't a sin that they've committed. We all sin with John tells us right at the beginning in chapter one of this letter. We all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But this is talking about something very specific, lying to the Holy Spirit. God says, no, that, that's not something that it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily affect salvation, but it certainly will affect the whole rewards issue because scripture speaks about losing your reward, but not about losing your salvation. Interestingly, we have some examples in the Old Testament. You've got Nadab and Abihu, who God took out of the game. Leviticus 10, they offered a an offering before the Lord with fire that they had brought from their own hands. Okay, it wasn't something that the fire that God had kindled. They tried to bring their own uh, offering of worship to the Lord. And God deals with it decisively. Achan, of course, in Joshua 7, God also uh, deals with that situation. And there's many others throughout the Old Testament. There's the situation um, of um, um, uh, Ornan, the uh, ark where the ark stumbles and he stretches out his hand and the Lord strikes him and so on. So God does take people out of the game effectively. All right. But that doesn't mean necessarily that any of those were not saved. I mean, we don't know necessarily with the likes of Achan, whether or not his heart was the Lord, whether or not he'll be in heaven or not. But certainly with Ananias and Sapphira, there's no suggestion they lost their salvation. So in both cases in the Old Testament, God intervened and brought judgment because there'd been a direct violation of his word. All right. So I can't give you a definitive tick list of what is on that list of a sin that leads unto death. But clearly the category seems to be around a direct violation of God's word or lying to the Holy Spirit. And that's not something you do casually. That's not something you do just by mistake or by reacting in the wrong way. OK, there's a willful intent behind those things. And certainly it can affect your uh, time on earth. It can be cut short. And you could be such that First Corinthians 3 talks about of being before the throne, but all your works are burnt up. You have nothing. Verse 17 says, all unrighteousness is sin. It says, and there is a sin not unto death. OK, so this is building on this that, you know, uh, there are lots of sins that we can commit that for which God will not end our life on earth. But this, again, is not seems to be talking about uh, salvation because John has already made it clear before going on to this that we can know we have eternal life. He says all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death. There's, there's lots of things that we can do that are sin, but it doesn't result in God taking us out of the game, as it were. Verse 18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now, this speaks, of course, of that new life. But he that is begotten or born of God keeps himself and that wicked one touches him not. You keep yourself out of the realms where Satan can actually get to you and influence you because you are within the love and the arms of God, uh, because you are walking with him and because that new life that he's given you cannot sin because it's of his spirit. 
Again, if you love God, you'll keep his commandments. We've read this already, you know, and you'll walk in the way. Psalm 119 speaks of that. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. So there's this big difference between the world and between us. We're of God. We are part of that family. But the world is under the, the sway of the wicked one, we're told in scripture. And of course, Satan is the God of this world. He owns this world for now. Which brings us to the end of the chapter, the end of the book. And we know that the son of God is come. And has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, this is the true God and eternal life. This is the truth that we are saved. We have eternal life because we are in Christ. This is the beauty. This is that relationship that goes right back to where we started at the beginning about growing to love Jesus more. And then finally, John ends with that lovely, affectionate uh, ending. Little children, that's the way he views those these writings here, as if we we're his children. Keep yourself from idols. So it starts by effectively saying your primary objective is to love Jesus. And you know, if you love Jesus, you are going to keep yourself from idols again. The point I just make here as well, just looking at what we're told, that you are already living your eternal life. Eternal life doesn't begin once you die. Eternal life begins when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. So you've already got it. If you are saved, you have eternal life. I hope that's a blessing and encouragement. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for this time this morning to be able to review these things. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust your word, that we don't need to be in any doubt, regardless of what men have tried to say through the ages, of those that have tried to detract from your word or undermine the authority of your word. Lord, we thank you that we have your word, that we can rely on it, we can believe it. We thank you, Lord, that we have that assurance that if we are in Jesus Christ, we have everlasting life because he is that everlasting life. Father, thank you for these things. Just impress them upon our hearts, stir us and give us a deeper and greater love for you as our Lord and as our Savior. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things. Amen.